So, Mark. Yeah. You're the kind of person who has enemies. Uh, sure. So, I was just wondering, if you had the opportunity to put a curse on your enemy and all of their descendants, what would that curse be? So, you know, just gonna put the disclaimer, I don't believe in punishing the child for the father's sins, etc., but you do believe in punishing the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. Skip a generation Just skip so they don't one generation. And then, when they're not expecting it, let it really sink in. Right. Of course. It's not the son's fault, but the grandson better watch out. Um. So my first thought, which I stand by, is a very minor curse that would drive you crazy. Your shoes come untied every half hour. That's fantastic. Every half hour, your shoe just is untied long enough that you can forget about your shoelace for just a second, but short enough that you are constantly kneeling down. Which also makes you look like an idiot. Right. You become the type of person that can't tie their shoe, and if you want to get around it, you have have to to wear Velcro with Velcro shoes, which also will make you look like someone who can't tie their shoes. I like this. This is good. See, I also was thinking, like, minor inconvenience, but mine was a private answer. Ooh. What would you do? I would give them firm, not hard, but firm rectangular poops. So, wombat poops. Yes, but coming out of their round human butt. It would be deliberately uncomfortable. Do wombats have square butts? They can't. I don't know. I don't know how that works, and I don't really want to look into it. It feels like something that should live as a mystery. If you do want to share it with us, though, and you know, you can tweet at us, hashtag check out that wombutt with two T's at the end. Again, that's hashtag check out that wombutt to let us know whether wombats have square buttholes. I got to wombutt, but I didn't know how to package it, and I'm very impressed with what you came up with. I've been doing this for almost four years, Mark. Has it really been that long? We started this in fall of 2017. Oh my god. Time We're on the flies. march to 200. Episode 200 is going to be a wild ride. Everyone get excited. We're going to get an update on how believable Hollywood romance is. Maybe by episode 200, we might be able to record in person with another cookie cake. Ooh, we did have a cookie cake for 100. Yes. Okay. So relatively early in the pandemic, after I moved, I like found a cookie cake at the grocery store and I love cookie cakes, but like somewhere over the course of the subsequent months, like all of my family got it into their head that like cookie cake is the one thing that I like. And so I have eaten so much cookie cake over the course of this pandemic because anytime (laughs) anything happened, someone was like, here's a cookie cake. And I'm like, I love cookie cake. I have not finished the last one. (laughs) That is such classic family behavior. I got a new job and somebody offered me a cookie cake and I was like, I cannot right now. Like, I will take a cookie cake in a month. Please wait. I need to finish the last one. Oh my god. Cookie cake. My sister did make me a cookie cake, which was pretty cool. I have tried making cookie cakes and they always just taste like large cookies and not like a cookie cake. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's the specific flavor that I don't know how to capture, and I think it might be industrial processing. And then a little bit after you've eaten the cookie cake, you have this uncomfortable, firm, rectangular poop because a little while ago someone put a curse on your grandparents. Your whole family line is cursed with poop 
squareness. Well, just not the child. Yeah, just not the first direct descendant. If you were to curse a family line and not make it weirdly, you know, sun-centered or sexist in terms of who gets cursed, how long before the entire human population is affected in some way by the curse and has square poops? How many generations? That is a very good question, and I like the way that you're thinking. It's longer now than it would have been, like, when Jennifer was alive, right? Because there are more people, but I guess they're interacting more. Right. So it would be less isolated. Like, if you were to do it in Jennifer's time, then it would become, like, a quality of the people of Roxford. Like, they all have these firm rectangular poops. Right. But nowadays, it would spread across the world. I will try An epidemic, if you will. I will try to do some math on this. Please do. I would be delighted to learn this. And if you can't get it through mathematics, might I suggest teriology? I cannot. One times one equals two, Mark. One times one equals two, because imperialism. That's right. They're trying to keep us down by not letting us know the power of one times the power of another one. That might be the most wacko discovery we have made in this podcast recording history. It's certainly up there. I I am going to have a movie to tell you about today that is a pretty wild discovery. Is it this movie? It is not, but this one was a delight to discover as well. I'm very excited to talk about this Crazy Pants movie, so let's get into it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people, or spirits, actually dateable, or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or if it's a one-scene flirtation, or if it's sort of the result of a curse. We will dig in and see what's there, and this week, we are looking at the magical sort of unintentional romance of 1942's I Married a Witch. So the first thought I had while watching this movie, once the actual plot got underway, is we exist in an entirely post-bewitched age. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I was struggling to think about how witches are thought of before Bewitched. And for what it's worth, the creator of Bewitched credited this movie with being an inspiration for that show. Oh, I can definitely see that as well. It's almost like a prequel to Bewitched in a way. Yes. It was kind of funny because I was thinking about this and thinking about the Bewitched movie starring Nicole Kidman. Have you seen it? I have seen it a very long time ago. You should keep it that way. It's no good. Do you remember the premise of the Bewitched movie? The premise is that she's an actual witch who gets cast as Samantha in a remake of the TV show Bewitched, if I remember correctly. (laughs) You are correct. Nicole Kidman is a witch who has never seen the show Bewitched, but they are rebooting it. So it is a meta movie about a Bewitched reboot. And like someone sees that she can do like the Elizabeth Montgomery nose wiggle. And they're like, well, she must be our new Samantha. And they cast her and it's like, Kind of a while before people start putting together that she is a real witch who was accidentally cast in this. I remember it being bad. It is quite bad. And I think one thing that both that movie and this movie are lacking is the very unsettle queer coding of the entire TV series Bewitched. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is 
This movie doesn't have a whole lot of characters. Yes, this movie has doesn't have a whole lot of anything except for Veronica Lake's sex appeal. Which, first of all, is a lot. It is very present. Number two, if anybody is listening to us so far and is like, I married a witch kind of sounds like a fun idea. This movie is on HBO Max and it is 76 minutes. This movie takes less time to watch than, honestly, some of the newest Netflix TV shows. Those are definitely starting to push 76 minutes. I think it is the single shortest movie we have ever covered. It must be. I feel like the previous record was probably around 80. Yeah. We've covered some short movies, but I just don't remember which one. I don't think we've ever done anything this short. I mean, there was our episode on Greyhound about the romance between Tom Hanks and that ship, but we haven't done anything shorter than that. Was Greyhound a short movie? Greyhound is quite short. It reads to me as a movie that would be long. It seems like it's long, but then you realize it's like 80 minutes with credits. Oh, Red Eye. That's the movie I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah. That movie was definitely more than 76 minutes, though. I think it was like 85 with credits. Anyway, I Married a Witch. Pretty fun. Not a lot of your time. Would recommend. Yeah, and it starts off with some incredible wig work in Salem, Massachusetts. I love the beginning of this movie. It kicks off, as all good witch stories do, in 1690 in New England with a witch burning that is then broken up by an intermission. So I thought we were, like, stepping out of it and, like, we had been watching a play of a witch burning and now somebody was, like, cutting in to sell popcorn. No, they were just selling popcorn during the intermission at the witch burning. I thought that was a really good way of doing a tone shift. Of starting yes, with sort the of like serious... shifting from, the, like, the dark seriousness. Right. And then basically signaling to the audience very quickly, just kidding, this movie is very silly. It's two witches, uh, a father and a daughter. And the daughter puts a curse on the dude who exposed them, saying that he and his descendants will be unhappy in love. And we then get this wonderful skipping through time of the descendants in the Woolly family all having disappointing romances. My favorite is when the dude is told that the Civil War has broken out and immediately sprints out of his house to enlist to get away from his wife. And his wife yells out, Yeah, you go run and join the army like a coward. It's funny. But Will, you're forgetting a very important point, which is after their bodies were burned, they were buried under an oak tree, which, as we all know, contains the evil within it so that they can't break out. I loved that idea that, like, the oak tree will soak up their roots. That's cool. It's cool, but I love how they phrase it as a very much just like, ah, yes, as that old thing that we all know and believe says. Well, I mean, they're busy, like, looking for witches and burning witches. I assume they are more familiar with how to deal with witches than I am, because I don't ever think about that. Like, they might have read King James's book about hunting down witches. Oh, I think it's just called Demonology. I read, like, the first paragraph of it because it's actually quite entertaining. But then we get brought up to the modern day where a lightning strike hits the tree, releasing the smoky forms of Samantha and her father, Daniel? I never caught his name. And it's not Samantha that is bewitched. It is Jessica. Jennifer. Jennifer. I can't, I'm so bad at character names, especially when it's an iconic actor like Veronica Lake and her hair. I think I had never seen her in a movie before. 
I don't think I have either, but I've seen her in enough Looney Tunes. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, Roger Rabbit and all that. Right. I mean, Jessica Rabbit is just Veronica Lake, but more curvaceous. Yeah, and a redhead. And a redhead. And this is, like, right as Veronica Lake is sort of exploding as this pop culture sex symbol. It's still early in her career, but of course her career isn't that long. Is this before or after Sullivan's Travels? This is after. Okay, because that is a movie with a poster that is just a one-line drawing of her face with her hair over her eye. And that is how they sold the film Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, so actually... Preston Sturgis, who directed Sullivan's Travels, was originally attached as a producer on this movie. And he knew Renee Claire, who was the director. Claire had the rights to the novel, brought it to Preston Sturgis, and it's like, what do you think of this? And Preston Sturgis is like, you should make this movie with Veronica Lake. And Sturgis also pitched it to Paramount on those grounds. And that was all based on Sturgis having worked with him on Sullivan's Travels. He's not a credited producer on this movie because he didn't get along with... Claire in terms of the creative direction of the movie, but that's playing a role in it. Uh, one of my like fun, weird Veronica Lake things I learned in doing all this, and I'm going to post this on our social media. She was, of course, this massive pop culture symbol. Her hair was so iconic. A bunch of women tried duplicating her hairdo, and like that became a popular thing. But allegedly, it led to a bunch of injuries in factories And it's World War II, so there are a lot more women working in factories than there had been previously. And that long hair, like, in front of the face kept, like, getting caught in machinery. So Veronica Lake did a, like, newsreally, like, the 1940s version of, like, an infomercial where she's like, I've got this iconic hair, but for the war, I'm doing it differently. Where she's, like, got her hair pulled back. And it's just, like, her talking and, like, demonstrating her wartime hairdo. Why wouldn't a factory require people to have their hair tied back? So the video does encourage people to keep their hair back and also points out that the best women factory workers wear like hats or stuff. Yeah. Also wear a hard hat. These are not things that OSHA needs to get involved in. These are basic common sense things. Put your hair in a ponytail and wear a hard hat when you work in a factory. Well, look, You know, Veronica Lake was just trying to do her part for the war effort. Good for her. I think old-timey PSAs are always some of the funniest things out there. They're great! Duck and Cover, of course, the number one. One that I know extraordinarily well because I show it to every one of my classes. (laughs) Even the ones that aren't U.S.-centered? I guess you don't really teach non-U.S.-centered classes. Yeah, all all of my history classes, there's always a reason to show Duck and Cover. But what about Psych? Well, no, I don't I don't show them that. Okay. I was wondering if you did some, like, mass hysteria unit just to teach them about duck and cover. In, like, 2017, I went to a bar that had a projector because they were having a night of 50s PSAs where they were just going to be playing a bunch of different, like, educational videos from the 1950s. And they had some great ones. Like, one was just a demo for an automatic dishwasher. One was like, targeted at teens about, like, how to plan a party, which was fantastic, and it was all about, like, getting people to come over and make sure you have the right mix of guys and girls for when the dancing starts. And then at one point, they were cycling through into the next whatever, and I just heard, dum-dum, dee-da-dum-dum, and I, like, started pumping my fist, and that's when I discovered that I know every word of the extended version of Duck and Cover, and 
that was four years ago, so I really know it now. It was like watching The Parent Trap with Fiona. What if we covered Reefer Madness? We have looked at it before. I think there's okay. like there's some problem with Reefer Madness that we decided not to cover it. Uh, probably a race thing. I think it might have been transphobic. Yeah. I know Soap Dish we nixed because it was transphobic. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, back to I Married a Witch. Okay, here's the thing I'm going to throw at you. Okay. We're going we're gonna to talk about some titles over, the, over time. So, I don't know how closely you paid attention to the credits, but this movie has some very weird writing credits. I did not pick up on that. It has two credited writers, Robert Pirosh and Mark Connolly, who are both acclaimed writers of the early 20th century. And it's credited as based on the novel by Thorne Smith, completed by Norman Matson. Oh, I did see that um, someone died. The original author of the book died. Yeah. So that was Thorne Smith, who mostly wrote, like, sexy fantasy stories that sold really well because they had racy illustrations. So he had started this novel before he died. His friend finished it. And that novel was called The Passionate Witch. <laughs> Great title. Then, when the movie was in development, the work in progress was called He Married a Witch. And I gotta say, that's much worse than I Married a Witch. Because He Married a Witch is just like, oh, look at that guy. I Married a Witch, I'm like, oh no, what happened? Yeah, I think I Married a Witch is just a streets ahead title. It feels kind of salacious. There's a National Enquirer quality to it. Not of just like, I'm gonna tell you the story about this guy who married a witch, but like, I am the person. I did the witch marrying. It really brings you into the world. Right, they're talking to me. Also, if you're unmarried, all of a sudden, boom, you're married. You don't have a choice To a witch! To a witch. A servant of the devil. Except not really, because the movie's version of witches is very interesting. I think the witches in this movie are servants of the devil. Like, I think that is clear-ish in all of this. The big turning point is the fact that Jennifer drinks the potion. I think that the witches in this movie are much more akin to, like, demons. Because they go around doing just mischief, like, causing mischief. And they're not really humans. They do spells, which are just songs. Yeah, rhyming spells. But her That's dad, how you remember them. Her dad, like, caused Pompeii, and it sounds like their true form is the smoke, not a human body. So to me, I was watching this, and I was like, aren't they more like demons than witches? Yeah, I guess you're probably right, because they are functionally immortal. They are created, but they're not really destructible. Right, because, I mean, the way it ends is just... Spoiler alert, they couldn't really get rid of the dad. They just locked him in a bottle and displayed the bottle for all to see. I love that they did that. I love the balls of that. I also love, like, the contraption that they built to keep him trapped in the bottle. Like, there's this, like, screw press holding the cork in so that his smoky self cannot get out. Well, he can't get out because he's constantly drunk and he can't remember spells when he's drunk. Right. He, by the way, uh, Daniel, you were right about his dad, is played by Cecil Kellaway, who we discussed before because he got an Oscar nomination for playing the priest in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I thought he looked familiar. I couldn't place him at all, though. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I recognized him, but did not remember that role for him. Right. And this was also 20 years, 25 years before that movie, so his appearance may have changed slightly. The other big role in this movie is obviously the titular I who married a witch, (laughs) 
who's played by Frederick March, who we've discussed before. Uh, he and Helen Hayes are the only people to each have two Oscars and two Tonys. He was investigated by HUAC for maybe being a communist because he openly opposed Nazis in the 30s. I still can't get over opposing Nazis too early as a thing people were investigated for. Yeah, because they thought it might mean he was a communist. So idiotic. We also talked about him because he won an Oscar for the best years of our lives. Oh, right. Who was he in that movie again? He was the banker. Ah, right. (laughs) I was going to say one of the titular years that I realized that does not apply to the person. (laughs) No, but I still like it. We, we can make this a runner. He is a titular He is a titular role. I can't get over the fact that his name is Wallace Wooly. Wallace Wooly. I know. Wally because Wooly. Half the time half the time she calls him Wally, and they never say Wally Wooly together, but I'm thinking it. Yeah. And then everyone else calls him Wooly. So just walking around named Wally Wooly over here. Now, March was the second casting for this. Originally, they cast Joel McRae, who acted opposite Veronica Lake in Sullivan's Travels, but McRae withdrew because he didn't want to work with Lake again. Uh, As he put it, life's too short to work with Veronica Lake twice. What was his problem with her? His big issue, he was frustrated that she was often unmemorized when she arrived at set, but Preston Sturgis had found that she liked the spontaneity she was bringing, so he told her to keep being unmemorized. But you can imagine how for a guy who had been acting for quite a bit longer, that would be frustrating. Yes, I can imagine that that would not be very fun as a professional actor. Yeah. Frederick March also had a rough time working with Veronica Lake. Apparently, before they even met, he made some comment about how she was like a dumb sex pot with nothing really going on. And that comment made its way back to Lake. So they didn't have a great shot at a good relationship starting off. And she would play pranks with him on set. Like at one point during one of the sequences where he had to like pick her up and carry her, which looks like it should be pretty easy because she looks like she weighs like 40 pounds. She would like hide weights in her dress so that she'd be much heavier. That is honestly I generally don't love pranks, but that one feels particularly lighthearted. I could get on board. So that one does. The other one that I kept seeing cited in different places, and I eventually found a quote from Veronica Lake's autobiography, was that when they were filming like medium shots from the waist up, a lot of places kept using the phrasing, she was pushing her foot into his groin to make him uncomfortable. But like, you couldn't tell because he's such a pro as an actor. The quote in her autobiography basically describes her giving him an over-the-pants foot job to try to distract him while he's doing lines. Oh my god, that's... Now that is very inappropriate behavior. Yes. Oh god. No thank you. And of course, like we mentioned earlier, Veronica Lake had a relatively short career. She died fairly young, too. Like, in her 50s. And she struggled with pretty serious alcoholism and possible mental illness as well. She studiously avoided anything approaching a diagnosis, which makes sense given what mental health treatment looked like in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, she basically would have just said, lobotomize me, doctor, if she had gone in for treatment at that time. So you understand why she avoided that, but also how it would have made her life difficult. And frankly, like, this is one of those kinds of things where people are saying, like, wow, what a thing to complain about. But, like, being a, like, culturally defining sex symbol cannot be an easy thing to do either, especially when you're, like, 21 when it happens. Yeah, and I can't imagine that that would be easy on her marriage. Well, marriages. Yeah, seems like it was not. 
There's a really good, uh, you must remember this from many years ago that talks about the life of Veronica Lake. So if that's something you're interested in, you've probably listened to it, but it's a oh, good yes. revisit. It's part of the Dead Blonde series, isn't it? Yeah, I doubled back and re-listened to it. Ugh. This season is so good. Yeah, I have not listened to the most recent episode yet, but I'm vibing with it pretty hard. A quick free plug for another podcast. It's a great podcast. Uh, people are not listening to You Must Remember This. You must. Um, that said, something that Karina Longworth did not mention on her episode, but I felt a need to mention, was Veronica Lake's final film, which she not only starred in, she also produced. This movie, Mark, is called Flesh Feast. I'm listening. And it is shorter than I Married a Witch. It's only 72 minutes. I'm listening. Here's the plot description from Wikipedia. Dr. Elaine Frederick, parentheses Veronica Lake, a mad scientist is working on developing maggots that prefer human flesh. I'm Meanwhile, intrigued. Her services are used to make a clone of Adolf Hitler. Will, how have we not watched this movie already? She cooperates with the plan to resurrect Hitler as a way of exacting revenge for the death of her mother, a political prisoner executed in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. While convincing everyone the flesh-eating maggots are for regeneration research, she simply wants to throw them in the resurrected Hitler's face. I mean, I could get on board with throwing flesh-eating maggots at Hitler. But you are cloning Hitler to bring him back to life <laughs> to then throw flesh-eating maggots on him. I mean, this is like the level of some of the curses we were coming up with. I can't believe it. I want to watch it. I want to see it. I put in bold so I would not forget, we must talk about Flesh Feast in my notes. We must. We must watch Flesh Feast. This feels like a movie that will be either very easy to watch or impossible to find. It'll be one or the other. Like, it's on YouTube or somebody once, like, made a bootleg VHS of it that just gets passed around. I will find. Ooh, YouTube. Excellent. Let's see. Nope. Never mind. It's only seven minutes long. Rip. Oh, that That's a bummer. Well, we'll look for that later. Wow. I can't stop thinking about Flesh Feast. <laughs> she just throws maggots in Hitler's face. Flesh-eating maggots. So, I Married a Witch. You know, it's a, it's a perfectly fun movie. It's, it's a little slight. There's not a ton going on, but it's kind of a good time. An interesting thing about it is that, it, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it was produced by Paramount. But then in 1942, Paramount had too many movies to distribute effectively and United Artists had too few. So Paramount just sold this movie to United Artists. And reading that, I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then I was like, you know what? It's nice to know that Paramount has been the same for 80 years, just selling off all their movies to everyone else. Paramount is one of the most interesting production studios. I am continually baffled by everything they do. I don't honestly know how they've made it this long. I mean, I guess they're surviving on the money they get from like, selling stuff to Netflix, and, like, some of it I got, like, sure, sell the trial of the Chicago 7 to Netflix, like, in a pandemic year, that's not gonna make you a ton of money. But, yeah, it's just strange how determined they seem to be to put no movies in theaters. Yeah, where are the, like, and then the movies they do choose to put in theaters are also a baffling decision. Maybe we should watch Monster Trucks for the podcast. (sighs) No. You're not prepared to meet Creech? I do not want to meet Creech. Okay, well, we'll consider that. I think we're probably going to meet Creech sometime soon. 
at the very least, if we're not going to get a monster trucks, we should do some monsters versus aliens. It's been a while since we did some DreamWorks. Oh, yeah, we do need to throw one of those on the schedule. That one might also have Renee Zellweger, so that one could count double for us. Is that really her? She's in a bunch of these DreamWorks movies. Yeah, it's very weird. She was like a contract player at DreamWorks. What a what a choice. I I don't think so. Maybe. Oh, no, it's Reese Witherspoon. Ah, uh, yeah. Some blonde. She plays Susan Murphy slash Ginormica. I just... This is one of those movies where someone... Oh, wait, no. Renee Zellweger is in it. She plays a typical human girl named Katie. Okay. Well, I was right. I love a double feature. This is really a movie where they just threw darts at a wall and then picked two words that they landed on. Are we talking Monsters vs. Aliens or I Married a Witch? Monsters vs. Aliens. This movie has... While slight, I feel like it has more of a concept behind it than Monsters vs. Aliens. Probably. To be fair, I've never seen Monsters vs. Aliens. So, maybe it's good. Me neither. I don't know. I have never- I've yet to be surprised by a DreamWorks movie. Except for The Crudes. Welcome to the crude age, Mark. (laughs) It's wild how many, like, slogans of dumb movies I remember. Welcome to the crude age, like, get ready to meet Creech. Yeah, I, your brain holds on to, honestly, the most useless part of terrible movies. Actually, a new poster for Peter Rabbit just came out because, by the way, I believe as this episode comes out, Peter Rabbit will still not have been released. I saw the poster and it just said, finally, on it. Yeah, there's a new poster that just says, like, finally, or it's finally here or something. Oh, God. No, ma'am. Allegedly, it comes out the Friday after this episode drops. Huh. <laughs> mm. Mm. I don't love it. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. I will not. We're going to be there. I can guarantee that will not be the first movie I watch back in theaters. I'm okay with that. I can work with that. I just have to find something to see before then. I have one last fun fact about I Married a Witch before we talk about the romance. Okay. Is it about Flesh Feast? It is not about flesh feast, damn it. But it is about flesh. Oh, I'm intrigued. Censors in a number of parts of the country were not happy about the scene where Jennifer first appears in her body in the smoke because the movie makes it very clear that she is naked in the smoke. But you don't see anything. That is what Rene Claire pointed out. He said the audience sees less of her in this scene than they do in most of the dresses she wears in all movies. And the censor pointed out, Sure, but the audience will know that Wooly is seeing her naked, which in itself is pretty salacious. They know a man is staring at a naked woman. (sighs) Censors, people are naked. Like, people sometimes are naked. It's just a thing that happens. That should happen zero times in movies, according to the censors. Did they cut it? Did the censors actually remove that scene anywhere? I don't believe so. Not that I could find. I can't imagine making this movie shorter. Right? I mean, it has the feel of a B-movie. Like, I couldn't find anything saying it definitely was, but you imagine that this would have been packaged with some more serious film in a double feature. Yeah, I can easily see that happening. I will say, so I say I can't imagine this movie shorter, but I liked it, but there are times where it dragged. It kind of sags. At 76 minutes, it still kind of sags. It's fun. It's worth your time. Again, it is 76 minutes. 
but it's not the most briskly paced thing. I feel like this easily could have been made shorter and put on during the, like, U.S. Steel TV hour if it came out ten years later. One of those weird variety shows where they just did plays. Yeah. That's what TV was, and it was all live. We have none of it. Yeah, we can't watch any of it. So I'm glad they didn't do that. I Love Lucy became iconic, A, for being good, and B, because they recorded it. So when reruns were invented, I Love Lucy was the only show they had. Yeah, it's really wild how we have, like, a decade's worth of TV just missing. Maybe not a decade, but you Uh, know what I mean. Most of a decade. When did TV start? I mean, like, mid-40s, but most people don't have a TV until, like, 10 years after that. Dear Google, when did TV start? I know that the 1948 party conventions were broadcast on TV, but I also know most Americans did not have TVs then. Yeah, I feel like it took a long time to get TVs out there. And it almost took a longer time to get color TVs out when they were invented. Although, my grandpa was telling me recently that when his dad, my great-grandfather, bought their first TV, it was like a five-inch screen. But then my great-grandfather went out and bought something to turn their black and white TV into a color TV. And this would have, like, been in the 40s, probably. And what it was was this, like, glass bubble kind of thing with arms on the back of it. So you hook it onto the back of the TV, and the bubble hangs in front of the screen. And there's, like, blue cloth, or it's painted blue on the top third, and, like, greenish painted on the bottom, and then, like, kind of brownish, or maybe, like, peach-colored in the middle. And my grandpa was like, it was great if you were watching a Western, because then it would like kind of turn the sky blue and the brown kind of green, and everything's kind of brown where all the people are. But if you were watching anything else, you're just watching it with weird colors. I think my mom said she got her first color TV in the late 70s. Wow. Like, it took a... I think some people were kind of just like, if black and white was good enough for me growing up, who needs this newfangled color? Yeah, it was also cheaper to buy a black and white TV. Yeah. I assume it's cheaper to also just not replace your TV for 20 years, which feels more like what my grandparents would have done. So anyway, Mark, should we talk about the romance of I Married a Witch? Surprisingly, a movie with romance in it. The focus, even. Yeah, I feel like, well, I guess we did Romancing the Stone last, which is also romance focus. So I was just thinking, I feel like we haven't done a pure romance in a while. Yeah, I mean, we had never been kissed not too long ago. Oh, I tried to block that one out. Oh, you, a movie you didn't where like that everyone one? should be a movie where every character should go to jail. Oh, the one about like all the adults who are trying to date high schoolers. Yeah. Including including her brother who goes to the school dance in his underwear. Yes, that movie where every adult is sexually attracted to and wants to date teenagers. Except for Molly Shannon and John C. Riley. I just keep thinking about that like surveillance van guy introducing the audience to the high school by ogling those teenagers. Oh, God. Yeah. I forgot about that part. I just remember all of the adults sitting down to watch prom with popcorn. A very weird idea. But honestly, possibly the least creepy situation of adults invading teens' privacy in that movie. Yes, that is fair. But also, I can't imagine that many adults caring. I don't care. I wouldn't care at all about seeing a high school prom again. Well, of course, they specifically want to find out what happens with Drew Barrymore. What's occurring to me right now is that unless they set up other cameras, they are just watching the entire thing from the perspective of her pin, which seems like a very boring and confusing way to do that. Yeah, they would have had to have just, like, placed cameras around the room. Right, there's, like, no way that they would have, like, 
seen her kiss someone, which would be bad, but also seems to be what they're invested in. I mean, if it was a kiss and dancing, it would just be pressed against the person's chest. Right, they'd just be seeing fabric. Maybe it's an audio drama. Anyway, we need to stop romance. talking about Never Been Kissed. We already did a, a, an episode about it. We have to talk about the romance of I Married a Witch. Okay. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of the movie into five points. Will, will you take us to point one? Yeah. So as we've previously established, in the 1690s, Jennifer put a curse on the Woolley family so that they would all be unhappy in love. So point one begins the night before Wallace Woolley's wedding, which is will itself be the day before the election in which he is running for governor of the state. Yes, no political platform is given and no state is named. The whole thing is set in Roxford, which is not that easy to say. I imagine it's supposed to be Massachusetts if it's pilgrims. Yeah, but it really could be like anywhere from New York to the Northeast. Right, because they also... You would think he would be in a bigger city than Roxford if he's running for governor. Unless Roxford is like Boston. It's hard to say. Who Who's to say? True suffering cometh when a man is in love with the woman he cannot marry. Father, suppose a man were in love with a witch. With me. I would not marry him. Anyway, Wallace Woolley is getting married tomorrow to the daughter of a publisher, who's like the big publisher backing his candidacy. I think he's supposed to be, like, Hearst. Yeah, for sure. And they're driving home from their, like, night before the wedding party when a fire breaks out in a building. Because what has happened is lightning has struck the tree that the witches were trapped in. And now the witches, who are just, like, blobs of smoke, have decided to go about into the world. And because they were burned, so fire destroyed their bodies, fire will also Give them a new body. So Jennifer, the ghostly thing, has set fire to the Pilgrim Hotel so that she can be born again in the flames. I find it hard to believe that an oak tree stood unmolested for 270 years. No other lightning strikes. I do like the concept, but it's hard to... I I find it hard to believe that no one knocked down a branch with their horse and buggy. I was going to say maybe they were specifically trapped in that limb, but that doesn't make any sense. Right, because they're buried underneath it. It's about the roots. Because the tree is planted yeah. over their corpses or something. Yeah, so the over their ashes because they're burned. In. Yeah. So the evil is sucked into the roots of the tree. Anyway, not the least believable part of this movie. I want to take a moment to note the special effects in the movie, though, which I really enjoyed. The smoke blobs are cool. Yeah, the smoke blobs are cool. They're clearly effects added to the frame afterwards. There are some moments where to make it look like the smoke blobs are moving around, it's clearly the camera panning and the blobs are stationary, but it's still like cool 40s visual effects. Right. And like there's the scene where she slides up the banister and it's clear that they're just running the film backwards. But again, like it's cool to see them experimenting with this stuff. I also like when they clearly just run the film backwards of the smoke going into bottles and what it the moments where the smoke blobs become actual smoke. Every shot in this movie that is just two bottles talking to each other is comedy gold. Because early on, when Jennifer and her dad are both smoke, they hide in bottles. And so there are scenes that are like straight up like dialogue scenes cutting back and forth between bottles having a conversation stationary. I also just love that 
a bottle with booze in it will get smoke drunk. That is such a fun touch. And, I mean, especially the the detail that the alcohol is not consumed. It's just that, like, he's, like, becoming one with the booze in the bottle. I mean, it infuses into his molecules. Yeah, it's great. Or something. I don't know how science works. So, anyway, Wally is stopped because there's a bunch of traffic around this building that's on fire. And he hears a voice inside. He, like, goes in to investigate. And that's when Jennifer is no longer smoke. She has now taken on the body of Veronica Lake. And only he hears the voice. Right. Because she is using magic to lure him in. And she's identified him as the descendant of the dude that she cursed. And she's figured, oh, I can get back at the woolly line again by making him fall in love with me and then refusing to be with him. She recognizes him because in a weird coincidence, almost like they're played by the same actor... This woolly and all of the previous woolies look identical. So she, like, immediately is trying to seduce him. She is, as the censors noted, naked among the smoke. And he keeps trying to get her to clothe herself and to get out. He is rightly worried about the building that is on fire. She's like, ah, no worries. Well, you know what they say. If you start a fire, you control it. I guess. If you're a witch. Made of smoke. Because they're never, they're clearly never in real danger. No. So he gets her out. He looks like a hero. They take her to the hospital. Wally's fiance is not pleased with how familiar Jennifer is, but like, whatever. But she is happy because of the politics of it. Yes, of course. He saved this beautiful woman. There will be photos in the newspaper. Her father's newspaper. And he gets home. And when he gets there, he discovers that she has beaten him there because she took a broom from the hospital and flew on it to get to his house. Right. Because witches fly on brooms. And also, I guess, know the location of Wallace Woolley's house. She's magic. There's a lot of this movie that's answered by just, she's magic. And so then she's, like, refusing to leave. And he gets into an argument with her. But, like, over the course of the night, she kind of entrances him into being in love with her. But only when they are together. Like, as soon as one of them leaves the room, he's like, what's going on? I need to get on with my life. I'm getting married today. Right. Because it is actually entrancing. Like, she's using her powers on him to yes, seduce her, him. Her witch powers and her Veronica Lake powers. Veronica Lake is bewitching in many ways in this she's movie. She's also got great costuming in this movie. Yes, great costuming. And not even always in terms of, like, great dresses, although she has those. But, like, the sequences where she's running around in his pajamas. She looks great. She's given a great performance. Like, it's good stuff. Also, when she's in just a fur coat, it's very appealing as well yeah so jennifer has not been having as much luck as she wanted she can entrance woolly when he's around but can't get him to stick with her and he keeps trying to go and get married so she gets some advice from her dad who is like why are you not using potions we are witches use potions and so he tells her like brew this love potion and this is where he gets a body also right Uh, somewhere around here to help out Yeah, somewhere around here, he gets a body to help out with the plan. So she makes the potion. She's got it in a nice, conspicuous goblet. And as soon as Wally gets home, she's like, here, Wally, have a drink of water. It'll make you feel better. And he's like, oh, yes, sure, in a second. But then she hits her head. Because she causes, she always causes the painting of the ancestor who burned her to fall down. But this time it bites her in the ass because it falls right on her head. Yeah, it gives her a real conk, and Wally's like, oh, here, let me help you. And he pours the drink 
into her mouth. And that's our point number two. I'm so glad you drank it, Wally. What? I didn't drink anything. What's she talking about? Oh, a drink of water. I gave it to her when she was coming to. You gave it to me? You should never force liquids on a person who's unconscious. It may have serious consequences. Oh. Nervous reactions. Come on, we're late for the wedding. Well, what are we going to do? Lock her in this room. But Dudley, come on before she marries you. Jennifer is now madly in love with Wally because of the... This is a great twist. I didn't see it coming and I loved it. Me neither. I really liked it. But I will say it has unfortunate implications in that the spell's never really broken. So it's not that love is more powerful than witchcraft, which seems to be the point the movie's trying to make. It's just that her magic is more powerful in the potion than other spells, I guess. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was like, huh, like, is the curse still on him? I guess not. Yeah, it's very odd. The movie uses the curse, like, to start off its action, but then it doesn't really matter except that Estelle, Wally's original fiance, seems like she would be a pain to be married to. Right, they do like, not Like, he was gonna be unlucky life. in love until Jennifer interfered. The movie just, I feel like it could clean up the rules of the magic a little bit. But also, like, this is not a movie that needs a lot of rules. Like, it's it's pretty light. It's a 40s rom-com, I guess? A fantasy romantic comedy, yeah. Yeah. Like, we said that the movie's a little saggy. I don't think what it needs are more rules. No, I just, I wish they had cleared up what was going on with the potion, like, showed the potion getting broken to prove that she's actually in love with him or something. You know what I mean? Okay. Because at the end of the movie, the happy ever after is that he is also in love with her, even though she is just magically forced to be in love with him. Yeah, I guess the question is whether the potion persisted when she was no longer in her physical form. Like, is it possible that her ghost spirit being drawn out of her body by her dad later on also broke the power of the potion like that would kind of make sense then it would reframe her behavior when she's looking it in the window at woolly grieving where like maybe she really does not feel compelled by seeing him and then makes a choice to go and actually be with him where she overcomes her witchiness and chooses that life right i would like if that was made clear so that i could root for her to be with him in some way yeah but hey what are you gonna do you married a witch yeah So Jennifer's now in love with him, and this brings us to point three, which is the next day, where someone's getting married. Last night I was your enemy, but now I've changed. I love you. I'll always love you. If I could die, I would do that for you. Will you you just be a sweet girl? Hey, they're ready. Goodbye. Where are you going? I told you before. But I thought that now, after all I've done for you. You've been very obliging. But now I'm going downstairs to be married. That's what you think. Um, wedding dress watch, as always. Estelle has a heck of a wedding dress. It wasn't terrible. No, it's it's a lot of lace. It's got this really interesting neckline where it's like kind of deep, but there's clearly a layer underneath it, so it's not scandalous for the sensors. The veil is like this like thing that frames her face and then turns into a cape. It's kind of a cool dress. Yeah. But Jennifer is now trying to prevent the wedding. So she and her dad go to cause chaos at the wedding. Her dad mostly to mess with Wooly. Right. Whereas Jennifer is just trying to stop the wedding from happening so that she can be with Wooly. I love starting in this 
scene, how just like anytime they're in the same space, she's always like drifting closer to him. And whenever possible, she'll just stand next to him, like petting his arm. (laughs) She's finding so much like business of showing how infatuated she is. And it's really fun stuff by Veronica Lake. She does a great job of looking compelled to this man. Yet she just stares at him with those big eyes. I love the scene at the wedding where her dad uses the gun to shoot himself to frame Wooly for murder. Yeah, I loved that bit. And then later on, when Wally has gone down to start the wedding for like the third or fourth time, they hear a gunshot go off again. He rushes up, finds Jennifer lying there, and he's like, oh my god, she shot herself. And he's, like, holding on to her. And she then immediately grabs him and kisses him. Like, she clearly, like, faked her suicide so that she'd be able to kiss him. And then while that's happening, that's when Estelle has had enough with her wedding not happening. And she walks in, sees the two of them together, and throws them out. One of my favorite bits is the singer starting the song over (laughs) a million times. I love you truly. Oh, God. That was the stuff where I was like, oh... One of the writers of this movie wrote two Marx Brothers movies. Yes, that is very Marx Brothers. There's always an old woman who's trying to sing in a Marx Brothers movie. So they get kicked out of the wedding. They're trying to hide from her father because her father does not approve of her infatuation. Right. But now he's in love with her, too, at this point? I, 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 I guess? Because he's at least this is where... anti-her. Yeah, he's so invested this is where they're like driving away and they run into this old boarding house so what's going on is like they're kind of stuck together because she's hiding from her dad and he just feels like he needs to get out of the state he's just run out on the daughter of the newspaper publisher who was backing him who will now publish a bunch of scandalous stuff about him so he's like not only am i not going to win the election i'm going to be a pariah in this state so i need to get out of here so they're fleeing together She's the one who directs him because she's totally surrounded the car in smoke. And he's like, I cannot see anything. And she's just giving him directions. And she takes them to the boarding house that is also the home of a justice of the peace who can marry them. Right. And then he just agrees to marry her. So now they're married. (laughs) Yeah, they just get married. (laughs) And then, like, right after they get married, she tries to confess to being a witch. But he thinks it's a joke. He's like, oh, yes, I've been under your spell since the day we met. And, like, when she tries to explain the curse she put on his ancestor, he just starts kissing her. I mean, that tracks. I don't think I would believe someone if they told me they were a witch. No, of course not. And her dad's in jail during this and drunk, so he can't do spells. And the next day, Wally does go visit her dad in jail to be like, so your daughter says she's a witch. And I was just wondering if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah. Is that, like, a thing I should be concerned about? Have you dealt with this Has she been talking about this for a while? Meanwhile, Jennifer is out there starting the steal. Oh, yeah. So she is now just... The way she's going to prove that she's a witch is by winning him the election. And we watch as smoke, like, blows through people and turns them into woolly voters, but also, like, blows past ballots and just moves the markers. Which, for some reason to me, that one feels more shady. Yes, that one is more shady. Because here's the thing. If you, like, blow smoke through somebody, conceivably, they could find a way to break the spell before they go to the voting booth. If you're changing their votes that have already been cast, there's nothing they could do about that. Right. 
And just in a time where we need to keep insisting that voter fraud does not happen on a large scale, this was very jarring to watch. Yeah, I didn't love watching actual open voter fraud happening through magical means. Yeah, I mean, if it takes magic, that helps to remind us that voter fraud does not happen on a large scale, short of magic, but I still don't need the representation. True. So, her dad is now extra mad that she is admitted to being a witch. And this really takes us to point number four, because oh, yeah. he is trying to put an end to this marriage. Goodbye, my darling. I want you to remember me as I was. Just an ordinary girl. <laughs> He'll remember. That will be his torture. And I'll remember that I loved you. Through all eternity. I'll remember. Estelle, by the way, is totally out of the picture. Yeah, I don't think Estelle shows up ever again. Nope. So he, the dad, is now trying to basically trap Jennifer away. Yeah, he turns her into a mortal. So that she can't resist him. And he's like, look, I'm going to trap you back in the tree. We're going to go back in the tree. Maybe we're going to wait until all humans are dead. And then we'll come back out. That was extreme to me. Yeah. Who knows how long that's going to be? They were only in there for 270 years. And now they're going to be there indefinitely. Yeah, I'm a pass on that. Like... Is it interesting in there? What was he doing that he's so eager to get back to? Yeah, because he's going back It was supposed to be a punishment. I wonder if there's fun times to be had when you're an evil spirit trapped in an oak tree. I feel like the Puritans would want to know that, and maybe they would stop trapping them in a tree. Yeah, because they don't exactly love fun. So he's also planning to punish her for her transgressions by erasing her love of Wally. He talks about that as they're going into the tree. And then she convinces him that she's no longer in love so that she can go watch him suffer, as she says. She's like, one last time before we go in the tree, let's watch Wally suffer. And dad's like, yes, you're a great witch again. So they go to watch, and the dad is, like, narrating everything that's going on as Wally, like, caresses her body. He's like, yeah, I bet you don't want to be touched by him anymore. You sure as heck don't want to feel his lips kissing you. And she's like, no. And then she swoops in and gets back into the body and they're together. And then they kiss. Yay. And then they trap the dad in a booze bottle. Yeah. I mean, that's his problem is he's an alcoholic demon. And when he gets drunk, he can't remember his spells. But this brings us to point five, the flash forward. Polly, darling, all our troubles are over. At least for the present. Flash forward, they're happily married with two very nice young boys. But then the housekeeper comes in and she's like, Mr. Wooly, I've worked for your family for 37 years, but I've had enough. And he's like, why? And he's like, your daughter is causing chaos. And the little girl comes in with a broom. Bum, bum, bum. And this brings us to the sequel, Bewitched. Here's my thing. Like, is Jennifer a witch at the end there? I think not. I also think not. It's just weird because she had been turned into smoke again. Right. I'm not sure. She may have gotten her powers back. I don't think the movie cares. Otherwise, they would have had her do a little spell or something. Yeah. Oh, well. But all that matters is that she is a wife, and she's a woman who is in her proper place. 
but the next generation of women might challenge those norms. Ooh, tune in and find out. Two husbands with the same name. It's one husband, just with two actors. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's the other way. That show is great. Anyway, I was wondering if they actually thought about doing a sequel. Not that I can tell. The movie was well enough received, but it wasn't like a smash hit or anything. Actually, I think I may have thought that before they did the flash forward. Yeah, I will say, based on the title, I assumed it was going to be more of the marriage. Frankly, more bewitched than it was. Because the title is I Married a Witch. But it's really, you know, it takes place over the course of like three days. Right. It's not about the marriage. It's not I'm married to a witch. It's I married a witch. It's a thing I did once. It's showing the story of them getting married, not the marriage. So, did you find all this romance believable? No. It doesn't make any sense. It makes very little sense. And that's the thing. is like, I think we both enjoyed this movie. But this whole episode has been us struggling to make sense of the romance. Yeah. And Wally Wooly, like, on top of everything else, Wally Wooly is not an interesting character in any way. No. He's not even that handsome. Right, he's, like, fine-looking. He's Frederick March, but... Yeah. I liked the way he looked better in Best Years of Our Lives, and he was a little more rugged. Yeah. So, I also want to make sure we mention that the love is only the result of a potion. Right, which is bad. And witchcraft, which is bad. So, I'm going to go ahead and say this movie's not that believable. So, where would you rate it on our 10-point scale where 0 means you believe nothing and 10 means you believe everything? I don't know. Like a... Two? I was also going to say a two. There's been a weird thing lately where we've really been converging. Yeah, it's very fun. I like when we have the same answer. I think that just like after four years of this, we're very much on the same scale. Yeah, we've gotten very attuned to the scale as well. So do you think that Wallace or Jennifer is dateable? No, I already said Wally is super boring. And then Jennifer is a little too mischievous. I'm not, I'm not pro-election fraud. I gotta say. I'm not pro-arson either. There's quite a bit of that in this movie. (laughs) That is true. She burns down at least two buildings. Do you think that they would stay together? I think that it all... I think that she might grow tired of being a mortal at a certain point if she has lost her powers. Can she immortalize herself, though? Or would she have to release her father? I don't know. Because that seems risky because he might put them back in the tree. Yeah, because apparently he's pro-tree. I kind of feel like they would. I think they would. I'm very curious about the, like, is she still a witch thing. Yeah, I do think that matters. Now, Mark, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? There are so few characters in this movie, so I'm just going to say the cab driver. Okay, sure. Because the only thing we know about him is that he is a good driver, and I found almost every other character annoying in some fashion. Here's the thing. My plan was also to say the cab driver. Although, actually, you know what? Just so that we don't double up, I'm going to say when the spirits of Jennifer and her father first emerge from the tree and they go up to the party, they're looking in the window at this couple that's making out. This is right before they the ghosts go into the bottles. And that couple seems to be having a good time. So I'll date either one of them. Great. They look like the only people having fun in this movie that aren't Jennifer. Yeah. Last question, Mark. Yes. Should I Married a Witch be made into a Broadway musical? I don't think so. But maybe. 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 I think this 
doing the smoke bits would be tough, but yes. not impossible. Yeah, you'd probably do it something else. I think the argument for putting this on stage is, frankly, the story is thin enough that you could do some interesting things in adaptation. And a musical only needs, like, 76 minutes of story. Right. Because some of it can be told through song, and then the other bits are just songs padding it out. Yeah. So. Wow. I think it could be done. I don't think it needs to be done. I think it could be done. No. I don't have, like, a compelling take for the musical version of it, but I think someone could come up with one. Yeah, very few of the movies, I feel, ever need to be turned into a musicals. But I do think this falls in the category of ones that could be done interestingly. And some do demand it. Like, sometimes you're watching Congo, which, of course, got a 10 out of 10 on romance, and you're like, we need a Congo (laughs) musical on stage. I would Congo to that. Absolutely not. This episode is over. Next week, we are covering a movie called Barking Dogs Never Bite, which I know nothing about. It's the directorial debut of Bong Joon-ho. Oh, I am fully on board. It's available to stream basically anywhere. It's on Prime. It's on Hulu. It's on our beloved Canopy. But is it on Hoopla? It is not on Hoopla, but it is on Voodoo for free. And uh, it does have a romance in it related to a marriage that is on the rocks. And also, there's some business with dogs that I am not going to spoil for you, Mark. Oh, no. That sounds dangerous. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions and movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from I Married a Witch? If your partner is trying to tell you something that seems important to them, you should listen instead of making out with them. And that will help to avoid confusion. Hmm. I was going to say, don't marry for politics, because then a witch will steal your husband. Instead, marry for love. Because then you'll be married to a witch. Yes, but also, don't use potions to make someone fall in love with you. Yep, that's bad. Don't do that. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! By my recording, we are at 78 minutes, thus making this record longer than the film I Married a Witch.